Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is January 8th, 2015, and this is episode 1495 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got expert counsel Ben Falk on for a full interview today. We're going to talk about something we've absolutely never talked about before on the Survival Podcast, soundscaping. What is soundscaping? It's understanding that in the design of your homestead, your farmstead, your permaculture property, whatever it is, sound has an impact. And how do you design with sound in mind? Sound is not something that is just kind of an etherical thing. It's a real thing that impacts our lives. Additionally, it's a huge part of homestead security. So we'll talk about all of that and more with Ben in just a minute. Before we do, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one today, KnifeKits.com. Hey, if you want to buff up on your skills, how about learning how to make knives? KnifeKits.com makes it easy. Get a kit knife and uh, go to work. And if you're not sure what you need, give them a call. They'll help you out with that. You can get books and DVDs that show you the basic techniques. And KnifeKits has it all. If you want to just start out really, really easy with kind of a kit, kind of like a model when you were a kid, you built like a plane or a ship or a car, they've got stuff like that. But if you want raw materials... Uh, from everyday to exotic, they've got that too. Check them out today, knifekits.com. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine. Easiest sponsor to endorse that I have. Because it's very easy to endorse a company simply by saying, I've been a subscriber for 20 plus years. And that's the truth with, with, uh, back, uh, Backwoods Home Magazine. I got out of the Army in 1993. I came to Texas. I kind of missed my rural, you know, upbringing. I ended up in this big city. Found a local bookstore, a Barnes and Noble. And I would go in there and I would read because it was well, they had up-to-date books on like the library. And I'd maybe buy a coffee and sit in one of those big chairs and read all kinds of things. I might spend hours in there reading back at that time as I was trying to figure out what to do with my life and find a job and what have you. And I found Backwoods Home Magazine. It was like immediately reconnecting with my rural upbringing. And, uh, you know, not too much longer after that, I started to get onto a career path and got a job. And my first magazine subscription as an adult was Backwoods Home Magazine. 1994, it's 2015, that tells you everything you need to know about my endorsement of Backwoods Home as a source of information. Consider it something along the lines of Mother Earth News with libertarian flair. Check them out today, backwoodshome.com. Next up, let's look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1495. I have three for you, the French disease and the first Italian war, Leonardo's Last Supper, And the first Scotch whiskey. I'm going to do two today because one's real easy. First Scotch whiskey. Friar John Corr makes the first documented reference to Scotch whiskey. The rest is history. Since Scotch was born this year, I cannot fail to mention it. I don't drink a lot of Scotch. I try to keep my intake of like hard alcohol kind of very, very, very moderate. But you know, a nice single malt or a beautiful blended Scotch whiskey like Johnny Walker uh, on the right time in the right place is really a great thing. And it's proof of some of the creativity that we can have if we truly try to make something as simple as distillation into an art form. Uh, but I want to talk about Leonardo's Last Supper because I have some thoughts on this today that kind of differ from Alex Shrugged who puts these together for us. 
And that's part what I love to do is like when two people have different takes on the same thing, it's kind of interesting. Though I don't know if I have a huge lesson for you into today with my, my stuff, but I guess there really is one. Anyway, let's go into it. Leonardo's Last Supper. Leonardo da Vinci begins the famous painting, The Last Supper, in 1495. It depicts what looks like a formal group dinner with Jesus and his apostles in attendance. It's called The Last Supper due to the New Testament narrative that Jesus met with his apostles for dinner and was betrayed by Judas shortly thereafter. Whether it was actually the last thing he ate or not, according to the narrative, it was the last meal without physical torment. Um, my take by Alex Shrugged. Because Passover occurs around the same time as Easter, many people assume the formal dinner was a Passover feast. It's possible. The calendar dates are fuzzy around the time of Jesus because the calendar was lunar-based and adjustments to the calendar were made from time to time to bring it more in line with harvest and planting times. We all hoped that it wasn't too fuzzy, but the system wasn't working well at the time, which is one of the reasons people like John the Baptist and Jesus kept showing up to complain. The author, Dan Brown, has fun in his novel, The Da Vinci Code, by suggesting that one of the apostles in the painting is actually Mary Magdalene and that writings from the time, not the Bible, suggest that she, that she started a secret society. I've read some of those writings. Dan Brown was not using them in a rigorous academic way. He was writing a story and a pretty good story, but that is all. I don't know that it's that simple, okay? And I want to start out this whole thing by saying I do not share your faith if you're a Christian. I respect it. Uh, I am not Jewish. I'm not Christian. I'm not Muslim. I am what you call a deist. I have no dog in this hunt. And I will say that everything I'm about to say has absolutely nothing to do with the Bible or what the Bible says or what really happened. So I want to do a disclaimer on that. But I believe that at least in Da Vinci's mind, the person seated to the left as you look at the photo of Jesus in the Last Supper is a woman. Whether that's Mary Magdalene or not, I don't know. But that's who it would most likely be based on mythology and lore, etc. The reason I say this is quite simple. If you look at this picture, there's only three people in the picture without a beard. Okay, So we can just assume that all the people with the beard are dudes. All right, Now, there's two people without beards to the right of Jesus as you look at the picture. These are dudes. If you told me those were supposed to be women, I would tell you that is a really bad attempt at cross-dressing. Really, really bad. No world on, you know, no, no place in the world would I look at either one of those individuals and say... That's a chick. Now, I would say that's a pretty effeminate-looking guy, but that was the art of the time, the dress of the time, etc. I mean, all of these people are awful white guys to supposedly be people from Israel, especially at the time with native languages of Aramaic, etc. So there's obviously some artistic license and fitting into what people expected of the time in this picture by Da Vinci. Again, these look like awful white guys, right? These look like Romans, Uh, these look like Europeans. These do not look like Israels, Israelites. So we have to accept that some of these things are not to be taken to be a literal interpretation. They are the artistic interpretation. But if you look at that video, if you look at the uh, uh, a rendering of the Last Supper, and you look at the person seated to Jesus' left as you look at the photo, leaning over, and it looks like Peter, who's holding a knife pointed backwards, is speaking to uh, that individual's ear. That is a woman. There is no world in which I don't look at that picture and say, that is a woman. Now, I understand how it could be interpreted as being a very young man that looks quite feminine, but that is a woman. 
The facial structure is that of a woman. Everything about that, I believe that Da Vinci painted a woman into that picture. And why, I cannot say. I cannot say. Now, was there, was there a belief in the Holy Grail actually being a child of Christ at the time? I believe there was. Uh, how prevalent was it? I don't know. How much did Da Vinci do it? I don't know. Why is it there? Is it because of that? Possibly. Is it because Da Vinci felt that Magdalene was slighted and should be included somewhere and did it to prove it could be done and, and kind of sneak it right in under the nose? Or was it done just out of spite? Was it just like, I'll show them, I'll put a woman in here and they'll never know? There's no way to know. There's another difference in the, in the, in the painting that when you look at somebody with Da Vinci's skill and flair for symbolism, you have to actually look at it and say, you know what? There's a reason for that. That figure in the painting is the only figure in the entire painting where the hands are clasped. Every other figure in the painting, their hands are separated. It's clearly designed to be a differentiator. The, the hands aren't on the table. It's like one's behind, whatever. They're clasped. It's a very ladylike position as well. And If you look at not all of, but many of da Vinci's pictures, you'll often find female uh, subjects with their hands clasped in that way. Now, what's the modern lesson on all of this? It don't mean nothing. If, if everything that's mythological around the Last Supper painting is true, Da Vinci was part of the Priory of Zion or whatever, it doesn't have any impact whatsoever on what you would believe as some a person of faith from the Bible. Because the truth is, that the time this picture was painted was further from the time of the New Testament than we are from this picture. You got that? Right? It was over a We'd have to be in about the year 2800 to be equal distance for this to be the center between where we are now and where the Christian religion was founded. So if you think about how many things have changed and have been interpreted and reinterpreted and how many myths and things have been passed down and what have you between the time of Da Vinci and today let alone 200 years ago and today, whatever Da Vinci thought doesn't really make anything or any impact on what really happened or what really was. It's just what Da Vinci believed and what maybe him and his folks around him believed. Who knows what that really was. Now, what's the lesson for modern day in that? There's a lot of conspiracy theories. that The person with a conspiracy theory uses the fact that someone else says, does, or believes something to prove the conspiracy theory to be true. Okay? We have to look at actual evidence in any of these things. Just because someone believes something and that person is a person with credibility doesn't mean they're right. That's the lesson for modern day. And with that, um, let me remind you real quick before we get uh, Ben on the air here with us that you can help support this show by joining the Member Support Brigade. You can do that by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. If you're a military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, active duty or prior service, email me before you join, put service discount in the subject line, tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I'll send you a discount code to save you even more money on a great product. With that, I want to say, hey, Ben, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Thanks. Good to be here, Jack. Hey, Ben, uh, you are part of the expert council. Um, we get questions from you for time to time from the audience uh, you, that you answer on permaculture, specifically in, in, in northern climates and northeastern climates in particular, since you're in Vermont. Uh, so a lot of people are very familiar with who you are. You've been on the show a number of times. I think the first time was probably more than five years ago. 
Uh, but some new listeners may have no idea who you are. So could you give us the, uh, the short story on who is Ben Falk and, and how'd you get into this whole permaculture thing? And well, why the hell do you have to live in a place where it's so cold? See, that's a good question. I asked myself that as the temperature is dropping like it is right now. It's like blowing, it's been blowing 30 to 45 on and off the last couple of days and now it's getting below zero tonight. So. You know, it's challenging in a lot of ways. Um, you know, we're getting like 30 to 40 below with wind chill in the next couple of days. And that that's really not that much fun, but it kills a lot of pests. And it, <laughs> it makes for a climate where, hopefully it doesn't kill us, uh, makes for a climate where there's a lot of fertility in the soils. I mean, there's a lot of kind of inherent fertility. So we, we can grow, we can do amazing things in the growing season. And I also love the winter. I love the snow and love to ski. But I got into all this. I then grew up in Western New York and just loved to be outside. That was, I think, how what led me to all of this was just wanting to be outdoors and really despising being cooped up inside for you know twelve years in school and then another four and and everything. So um, just found a way to make a living outside it was really the big part of it, um, and also solve problems. And um, and then in the last bunch of years just kind of have a great lifestyle like have a really land-based place-based lifestyle where i don't have to the idea of commuting just really turns me off i I can't i can't imagine doing it and um i felt like i commuted when i was a kid going to school every day and i was like just not into it so i wanted to um be able to wake up walk outside and and just have a productive life without having to you know fight traffic or just sit on my ass so um yeah, basically, and and I guess there's this thing called permaculture where you can uh, where you can solve a lot of problems, especially around you. And um, one thing led to the next. I got some land 11 years ago, a little more than. Ended up here. Um, wasn't planning to stay forever, but started to plant trees, and that sometimes leads to one thing to the next. And the trees started bearing fruit, and the veggie garden started producing, and I, I started thinking, "Oh, this place is actually really amazing place to be," and uh, was able to still hopefully able to pay the mortgage so I was able to stay and just keep watching the trees grow and keep putting more in the ground and then that's bolstered my design business which I knew I wanted to do since I got out of college uh, John Todd really got me into a lot of the ecological design you know permaculture stuff I was fortunate to take a class with him at UVM you know kind of modern day ecological design father who invented the living machine and has done some amazing stuff and yeah so now we have a design business for the last almost 10 well more than 10 years actually and teach permaculture courses and wrote a book and just kind of um do a lot of site consultations and and uh planning for for clients you know and you live up in the northeast where you have these cold winters and and i i lived south of you from there for a while in pennsylvania there is a big advantage up there and it's the the kind of the reset of the season so there's something that i immediately thought of you and i wanted to get your take on this uh when i heard it i was listening to an interview with the guy that runs Cuffle Creek uh, Apples uh, Orchard down in, in Southern California. And this guy's growing apples down in, like, a place way hotter than even where I live now in Texas. Mm-hmm. And he was describing, like, some of the challenges with that in that in a northern climate like you're in, you have that amazing blow-up green of spring, right? And he said it's like that, the, the, the seasons up there are like, a person, you know, your age or my age that works all day, we get a really good night's sleep and we wake up on a work day and there's only so much time. And so we hit it hard. In the South, we have this like sort of pseudo winter thing that goes on. And like when spring comes, 
The plants are more like a teenager on a weekend. <laughs> and they're kind of like, I'll get up and I'll kind of do my thing. So you guys get that explosive recharge uh, right. from a full winter. And I think that's actually one of the advantages of a northern climate. Yeah, Def definitely. You come out, it comes out, come out swinging. And it's also super water secure because even if it doesn't rain for you know, a month in the summer, the ground around here is still pretty much wet. And just when you're in the hills too, in the mountains here, as you know, when you came up and visited, oh my God. So the ground soaking wet just from the dew. I mean, we get inches of rain in the form of dew like every month in the summer if you're in the hills. So it's super water secure and water, you know, it's kind of at the basis. So if I'm going to want to be secure with one thing, it's pretty much If you have water and you have some trees, which they go together, you know, you're going to be able to get by pretty much if you get some stuff set up, even if it's really cold out. I'd much rather be in that situation than like, you know, desert, you know, hot desert arid. That that gets kind of scary pretty quickly because it's very, very brittle, and very, very vulnerable. It, it's definitely a toughest challenge here. And I will reinforce what you said with this. If you ever go camping in the summer in Vermont, I don't care if it says it's going to rain or not. Put the rain fly on your tent. Uh, or you'll, you'll, you'll think it rained even if it did. Everything will be soaked. But anyway, we have you on to talk about a, like a totally unique subject, uh, today. At least one of the things we want to talk about. Um, soundscaping. Now with permaculture, we also, we often talk about things like, uh, edible landscaping and things like that. We talk a lot about hardscapes as well, like, you know, designing decks and the integration of systems and hard water runoff surfaces and all types of things that we put into the design of a property for self-sufficiency. But sound is not something people generally think about. I guess in a permaculture design course, you might think of a noise sector and a sector analysis, and not a lot more than that seems to get uh, discussed about it. So can you talk about why soundscaping is important and how sound as a whole affects us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it is, it, it's good you mentioned like how people do hit on soundscape and, um, or sound and, you know, um, in zones and sectors as, as an influence. And it's just, I think, a very un, um, unappreciated influence. And that's easy to, um, understand in the world we live in today because our soundscape is, is assaulted so often. I mean, it's kind of like, You know, it's kind of like the night sky. We've just so many of us have learned to just figure and just kind of accept that you don't see so many stars, you know, unless you really get away from it. And you just get you. It's like that norm. You know, it's 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 normalized. And if you kind of take a take a step back and start paying attention to your soundscape, you realize how many things are normalized in your own soundscape and you start wanting to to improve it. So we just treat soundscape like any other. Uh, process of a site. You know, we analyze for features and processes, whether it's microclimates, water flow, you know, wind flow, uh, view sheds, soil, slope, you know, all the things we look at. And sound is a big one. And so for, I'd say, at least half of our projects where it's a significant influence, where there's a road or there's a neighbor that does whatever, um, the influences and the implications of what's going on in the soundscape to the site that we're designing are significant. And we look at them and we look at them over, you know, the course of the year, what direction they come from, the local topography, how they're affected. And I've had a lot of surprises um, in soundscape in my own life here. And actually probably one of the biggest mistakes I made on this piece, on this 10 acre piece of land is I had a bunch of the white pine down low logged and traded those white pine for hardwood to burn while I was letting a lot of the stuff I planted grow. 
And I didn't realize I'd learned in graduate school for landscape architecture. Our director said, oh, trees don't really buffer sound. If you have a client, you have a project that want to buffer sound, you need like mounds, you know, you need earth or masonry materials or walls. And, you know, he, I think he might be right some of the time, but as it is with most things, it depends. And these walls of not even very thick, but probably about 20 white pines block the sound of Route 100, high, which is basically a state highway, as it goes across the valley, bounces off a cliff, and then comes right onto my site. And I would have never appreciated what they really did until, you know, if I hadn't removed them. And unfortunately, I did. And um, they, they, you know, they're not going to grow back overnight. And now I hear that road much more than I did. Yeah, I think a lot of people are in that concept, misconception that trees don't block a lot of sound. And I think it's, I think it depends, right? And how many times do we all say that in permaculture? And I find the more I learn, the more I answer a student's question with, it depends. Right. And so it depends. So does that mean that you're sitting on something like I, I Interstate Highway 20 with giant rigs going down it and you're 15 feet off the highway easement? And then, yeah, a row of white pines will probably do something, but not a lot, and you might need a sound wall. But what you're talking about is a much different a longer uh a longer horizon i guess for that sound to travel and not quite the intensity yeah and then i think you have to sometimes lower the intensity of an energy to understand the effect of an obstacle on that energy in other words it's so overwhelming if you you know and i think that's the thing like a lot of landscaping uh school and stuff is among the the suburban mindset and you have a house literally backed up to a major interstate 5 feet off the off the highway easement and in that case, yeah, a couple of trees won't do a lot. But right. in, a, in a more, let's just call it what it is, a, a nicer place to live, it probably has a big effect. Right. And that's and I think that's the reason we don't pay att attention to soundscape as much as we should is because our soundscape is so dumbed down. It's so assaulted so much of the time that, you know, if we really walk out and pay attention to it, you know, I'll go visit my parents or go visit, you know, who, whoever, you know, that lives outside of Vermont, especially if I go south. And if you just step out at night, you know, you're going to hear some high, some drone of a highway or some hum or buzz of some machine, some ventilation equipment somewhere, um, you know, at all times of the day. And you start learning, you know, you filter that out because you, you'd go insane if you're constantly focused on that. Obviously, you would, you would go literally go nuts. So we're good at filtering that out. Um, unfortunately, there's a lot of evidence to say that, you know, that does impact us. I mean, sound is very real. I mean, sound actually can be very violent and sound is used violently um, as a weapon. I mean, you, you turn the sound up enough, and and you have you have violence just through sound. And um, so so even even moderate amounts of sound over time, or even maybe small amounts, possibly do a lot more to, more to us um, than we realize. As we as we always learn, the more we learn about something, the more we realize how much influence every little thing has on living things, on our own, you know, mental. Uh, escape and sound is a big one. So we, we definitely, you know, it makes me think of, I had this office that I, I had a company in and when I first moved in, I decided where I wanted to put my desk and all. And there was this component, electrical component for the AC system right in that corner. And it made this incessant whining noise that seemed like almost like when you get tinnitus and like your ears ringing and it was just constant and I'm like that has to go and the the building owner said well we can't move it and I said well if I'm going to be your tenant you're going to move it and we came to an agreement that they would move it but it would take like a month 
Mm. And by the time the guy showed up to do whatever he had to do to be able to move it on the other side of the wall, I forgot that I was upset about the sound because I'd become accustomed to it in that time. Yeah. And it wasn't until it was gone again that I realized how incessantly hateful that noise was. Yeah. And when you're talking and I'm thinking of that, I'm thinking like of an interesting exercise I just invented in my head, which you, you know, maybe other people have already come up with, but like a way that you could understand the sound on your property, I think it would be awesome is the next time you're like outside working on your property, instead of wearing earphones and listen to me and Ben talk, just get a set of shooting earmuffs and put them on your head for like a day. Mm-hmm. And about halfway through the day, take them off and listen. And I think right. it would tune you into the good and the bad. Absolutely. Yeah, you have to like, step, you, have have like you know, when you get it. sick and your ears plug up, and next thing you know, you're screaming at somebody, and they're like, why are you talking so loud? Right. And then when you blow your, you know, you hold your nose and blow, and you, your ears pop, then everything, like, comes way up. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, we tend to have to kind of step away from things to see what they really are or hear what they really are. And, um Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty incredible how pervasive. I mean, sound travels a lot further than a lot of influences. So it, it's also very easy and very sneaky the way it affects sites. We had a client, we actually saved a client uh, who was from New York City from buying land in Vermont where they were going to move to because they didn't realize that you could hear the interstate, the Interstate 89, which is the most significant road in the whole state of Vermont, basically, Um, because they hadn't been there at the right time. Oh. They hadn't been there for very many hours before they were going to spend, you know, big bucks on buying this piece of land. I said to myself, you know, you should go there at night and when the wind's not blowing and just make sure you can't hear that interstate. And she drove up from New York City before closing on the property on like a Wednesday night after I said that. And she just had like, she said she had like a dream about it or something, had a bad, you know, bad feeling. She went up and they said, no way, we're not buying the place. You can hear the interstate pretty well. And we just hadn't experienced that in our time on site. Yeah, you just hear that road whine of big rigs. It's 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 really if you're if you're looking for that forever home, you know, that place to live right. in tranquility, and then you get there and realize that I think there's things like that too, like wind. So like anybody that's hunted knows that when the wind's heavy, you can't hear a deer when you're sitting on a stand. But right. if it's calm, you can hear movement hundreds and hundreds of yards away, even in thick woods. That wind will cover things up, and if it like you're saying, happen to be there at the wrong time, it can bite you. Um, so are there other aspects like that, things that maybe uh, surprise people after they move on to a piece of land that they didn't anticipate? Yeah, well, I think the big thing with, the, with sound, I mean, there's a lot of things, you know, with soil and water and everything else, but the big thing, soundscapes is probably at the top, near the top of the list that people just don't, even if you do your analysis and you do, you know, or at least a lot of them, you check, do a soil test, whatever, dig some holes, Um, look at the water drainage. Soundscapes are what really creep up and, and tend to really bite people in the ass. Um, I always say, you know, if we could map all of the land just in Vermont that where you can really hear the interstate, any of the two interstates, like we're lucky to only have basically part of, of all of a lot of one and part of another. And it would be tens of thousands of acres. Like continually surprises me. I've visited almost two sites and 200 sites in Vermont And I would say a, a surprising number of them, even if they're sometimes over a mile from the inner, one of the interstates, sometimes you can actually hear them. And it's all about the local topography. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you could be, you can be 400 yards from an interstate and not hear it. You'd have to have the really, the perfect land shape where you're basically usually below it. Correct. Where there's, you know, a mound of bedrock between you and the, and the, and the, and the interstate. 
but you can be – I had a friend who was probably two miles as the crow flies, but on the top of his land, he didn't realize it until he got it because he hadn't been up to that part of the land at the right day when the, when the wind was just right. He's like, wow, I could totally listen to Interstate 89. So it affects huge areas and it's not, you know, it's not linear. You have to kind of map it out. So I think what often we'll do with people is make sure they're really looking at the local topography and, and then also there's no substitute like with anything for being on site as many times throughout the year before you make a decision. Let's say if you're buying a piece of land and you don't want to hear a certain road. Um, so, and then there's a lot you can do, you know, to mitigate a soundscape that you have, which you wish you didn't have. Yeah, can we talk about how to manage that? Because in the in the end, all we've done is given another, uh, people another checkbox to eliminate a piece of ground right. at this point, right. right? Because there's right. so many things you do where you're like, okay, not this place, not that place. Right. And, I, you know, when I shop for the place that I have now, it was it, it's never the ideal. But at the point that I bought this place, I almost would have bought anything that worked because it had been nine months of shopping real estate from 300 miles away, which is difficult. Right. A lot of people looking for land are, like the folks you mentioned, they're from New York and they're all the way into Vermont uh, shopping for land. And right. making that one more trip might have seemed like a pain in the butt, but it saved their neck. But in the end, you never get perfect land. There's always something that could be better. And when we do an analysis with energies, whether it's wind or solar or sound or water, any energy in a sector analysis, we ask ourselves a question. Do we want to invite this energy in? Do we want to keep it out? Or do we want to channel it a certain way? So how can we do that with something as ubiquitous as sound? Yeah, it's a good question because, like you say, even if you really do all you can to, to um, account for soundscapes and you buy a piece of land when you're looking for a site, um, you can't do much about like airplane traffic sometimes. I mean, you can yeah. literally choose a place that's not in a main flight path, but there's going to be random you know, military jets or whatever. So mitigating sound is a big one. Um, I think one overarching approach that works even for random sounds that you can't predict is creating alternative sounds you want. So like masking the soundscape with something better and actually creating your own sound. So things like flowing water can do that. Planting a lot of, you know, bird, you know, bird and pollinator habitat and attracting, you know, other sounds to the site in the form of let's say wildlife, like songbirds is a great one. Um, and, you know, there's, 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 and then you get into, so what, that's, that's kind of a, a, a high order mitigation strategy is create a different type of sound that you want. I mean, it could even be, um, being near a school. It's interesting. One soundscape I also didn't anticipate here. One was the road, but one was also hearing the kids at an elementary school play at recess, mm. which is by that same road. And I love that sound. Sure. Really, really neat. And sure. I, you know, I, I, never I was, I was worried. <laughs> I was like, please don't say that's a horrible sound. Right. No, no. It's Can you awesome. say the children playing is a horrible <laughs> totally, sound? No. Yeah. I never hear them, you know, fighting. I hear them yeah. laughing and just, yeah. you know, I hear sports games and people like having fun. Yeah. And it's really, really a neat, a neat thing to witness. And again, you know, that's probably like 600 yards away as the crow flies and like a mile if you were to really walk there. Mm. Um, or three quarters of a mile. So, so you can invite in and create, help facilitate really great sounds, um, with water and, and, you know, animals and things like that. Our, our ducks, I mean, our, you know, I saw you had a recent show about ducks. I didn't get to listen to it yet, but you had a great, awesome outline about it. And ducks are a super positive influence on our soundscape. Man, I, mean, I love them. 
Yeah, they you know when, talking and <laughs> oh yeah, and when they're content and they're finding like a big stash of slugs, the soundscape just goes through the roof because they have that really like kind of mellow. I can't, I'm not even gonna try to imitate, but they have yeah. this beautiful little lower content kind of chowing, excited. Yeah, then they're just and that's just beautiful. I love hearing that. The geese. Not so much as far as good soundscape. <laughs> you know, I, I literally have put on my ear protection to go in and feed them at night and like put them away. If I'm been in the yeah. shop, I'm like, oh, I'll keep my ear pro on to go down there because um, they're below the shop. <laughs> but you know, they're a soundscape influence, that's for sure. And then you know, there's other. So that's adding soundscapes as far as mitigating. You've got things like like actually buffering, planting trees. We, we talked about that a little conifers can do a lot and when they have mm. snow on them they can do a massive amount i mean you can have one soundscape and then when it snows as we all know it's amazing when it snows everything gets just so quiet yeah and the conifers can be a wall of soundscape deflection when they're covered with snow which in certain climates can be you know months a year so that can be a big deal they're better even than hardwoods even if they're not covered in snow so thick you know, thick trees, um, cedar, you know, any evergreen. It doesn't have to be mm-hmm. coniferous, but most of them are conifers. Hemlocks, white pine. You know, I'm looking at some right now that do serve some soundscape for me. Um, Norway spruce that are kind of below my site. Um, and, you know, we're planting like edible stone pines as well, but those are slower to take. And then you can do things like make berms or, you know, build fences, but that gets obviously a lot more intensive. So that's that's a lower you know, you're not as stoked if you have to if you have to resort to that. But sometimes you do. If you're on a small site and you have a real road, you know, try to build get multiple functions out of a fence or a berm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the the evergreens is a big thing, and any hunter, you know, knows that when it's really cold and windy and miserable, that if there's a stand of pines, that's a great place to look for deer because they go in there for the same reason. And I've been out, you know, when I used to hunt in Pennsylvania, and it would be you know, almost zero degrees or a little bit below zero, and the wind's just howling. You can't hear anything. It just sucks, and you get into a big stand of pine, and it's almost like you've stepped into a room. Mm-hmm. It's warmer. You can hear. It almost goes dead silent, Compar- yeah. comparative anyway to, you know, the ripping yeah. winds of winter up there. Absolutely. And, you know, you're bringing up something really interesting, which is one of the great multifunctional benefits of of creating a three-dimensional landscape like we do you know following permaculture principles you know we're we're not we're deliberately trying to create a 3d place and not just a 2d flat plane we're trying to use you know all dimensions so any good permaculture site anywhere in the world is enhancing its soundscape simply by creating lots of little like micro sound sheds small areas um where where you're you're the way soundscape is different than, you know, the larger site. You have lots of different types of sounds. You're creating diversity, structural diversity. And, um, that creates, you know, a diversity of soundscapes. We have areas, you know, I'm looking out right now at this little beach stand that was here. And I know when I walk by that, that has its own soundscape that kind of echoes into the courtyard by our shop because the beach keep the leaves for all the whole winter. So when it starts snowing, it makes one sound. When it's windy, it makes another sound. Those beach, those beach trees are kind of talking, you know, they're making their own, their own zone and they're kind of, they're influencing their own zone and oaks do something similar and conifers kind of whistle and, you know, pines whistle with their long needles. So, you know, anything that holds its leaves has particular value, you know, in the winter and this cold climate for, for creating a, you know, 
breaking down the scale of soundscapes on a site. And that's really important. So wherever we're planting hedgerows or we're actually making structure in the landscape like ponds or swales or rice paddies um, or any type of berm, you're also localizing soundscapes, which is almost always a good thing because it's diversifying them. It's almost like, you know, you, we create microclimates like solar catch and whatever. You can actually right. create micro soundscapes, so micro Absolutely. sound climates, right? Absolutely, micro soundscapes. And, and that makes, you know, that makes a site a lot more enjoyable and much more interesting. And I can't imagine the health benefits of that or, you know, the mental, maybe it's just mm-hmm. the mental health benefits, but imagine on kids, you know, and, and, and being growing up in a landscape and having these little universes on a site. And that's, you know, that's really kind of what a lot of this comes down to is we're creating just really kind of fecund, um, beautiful places to be, you know, to grow up in and, and to hopefully grow old in as well. And, and sound is you know, such a big part of that. I think it has a big effect on our livestock as well. I mean, you mentioned ducks earlier. There's, there's nothing that happens on a piece of property that you can hear that they don't hear better than you, right? right? So that that has to mean to me that a sound that would be stressful is going to have a stressful effect on a duck or a cow or a sheep or a goose or, or what have you. And an animal with even a small elevated amount of stress is going to produce more cortisol. That's going to make a lower quality end product as well. Yeah. Uh, not to mention more susceptible to disease. So anything that affects our health, positive or negative, probably positively or eff- uh, negatively affects the health of our our livestock as well. Yeah. Stress stress is is affected by so many things at so many kind of levels of of frequency and intensity. That's a big 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 point. And you know you bring up a great point by bringing up animals, and that is you know the the value of making sure you're you're planning your site with regard to soundscape and especially where animals spend the night because for a lot of animals predators eating those animals is a huge deal yeah and so co-locating your you know your barn or your wherever you you know animals are put up at night with a place this is the best pattern that we try to work with all the times is at all times is ask yourself what can i hear from my bedroom how well can i hear my site from my bedroom and from my kitchen Mm-hmm. Because those are the two, you know, those are the places, I don't know about you, but I think most of us in the in the way we want to live spend our hours when we're in our house. I mean, every now and then we're in the bathroom, every now and then we might be in the closet, but for the most yeah. part, we're either sleeping in front of the house or we're in the kitchen. Yeah. And what you can hear from those two places ha- is going to determine how many animals are going to be taken by predators on your site over over the course of you being there. And also, you know, who's coming onto the site? Can you hear the entrance to your property? That's yeah, that's a valuable. Point. And yeah, that's that's something I miss so much from Arkansas. I had a gravel road. There was one way in, and if you were two miles away, I already knew you were coming. The dogs already knew you were coming. Right. We right. don't have that level of security where we're at now. Sound can tell you so many things before your eyes can tell you. And and it tells you pretty quick. I mean, what is it, seven hundred and some odd miles an hour? Yeah. That message is moving through space to your ears. And you know, because we don't hear very well compared to most animals, I think we just we don't we we don't um we don't take it into account enough. And I mean the smellscape, you know, the uh, o- the odorscape is a whole nother topic, but we we smell even worse than, you know, most animals. Sure. That's a whole nother thing. But any of those senses that we can bring, you know, our, our job as a, as a good designer or a good, you know, just even a good homesteader or a farmer is to have as much sense 
of what's happening around us at as much of the time as possible. And when you're indoors, especially is when that's really um, eclipsed and, and retarded. And that's actually, we sometimes have a great question. Every now and then in our permaculture courses, we'll be touring them through our like high performance kind of studio apartment here. And they'll say, well, what's the disadvantage of, of having this great, really well insulated building? And I was like, well, you know, there's one there's one definite disadvantage to a really like nice cold climate, well insulated home, and that is you can't hear jack squat outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's not good. That's not a good thing. <laughs> you know, you but then so you create alarm systems, right? So like our birds are pretty far from the house, and we don't really cohabitate them, but we have geese centrally located with the rest of the birds. If something's going on, even though we don't hear very well out that far. The geese know, right? And you will hear the geese, you know. Exactly. So something to relay the sound. The other night, I went out there ready to kill a raccoon. It ended up just being like a young possum. That, frankly, the geese were terrorizing anyway. But you know that that I immediately knew something was up. They were they were pissed. They were upset, yeah. and they weren't going to shut up till it was gone. Right. You know, if my my wife would understand, there are dogs that can live outside. We'd have one of those too. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> right now, the dogs sleep probably better than I do. <laughs> yeah, our dogs are are huge on that front. I mean, they hear stuff outside when we're sleeping that we would never hear. And we've learned when they're when they think something's out there, we just need to holler butts out of bed, one of us, and let them out because yep. that's that chases the predators off, that keeps our birds alive. Um, you know, more often than not. And you know, so there's a pattern just to step back for one sec for so people have some some real good takeaway on the on the kind of co-location of space with animals. The pattern we tend to try to work with is we're always like telling our clients to put their barn closer to their house. I mean, oftentimes people are like, oh, we'll have our chicken coop way out here. And it's like, yeah. not if you want them to live. <laughs> you know, you want them and you look at where the old farmers used to put stuff. We like we, I love the New England vernacular, how stuff was laid out. And those buildings were all connected. I mean, their chickens were in, you know, big house, little house, back house, barn. Yeah. The chickens weren't even in a different building. They could walk out there in their, you know, in their skivvies to the chicken coop. And even to tend the cows, milk the cows, throw hay to them. So that's a, a little bit of a problem from a fire perspective. to have lots of connected buildings, but it's basically for every other reason, it's awesome. Well, and then so today we have code issues code. with that too, right? They, 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 exactly. The, the department of making you sad. Right. But I can definitely see that. I mean, it makes me think if you, if you look at like, you know, the biblical story with the, 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 the birth of Jesus and being in the manger. And when you look at modern historical uh, things on that, it's nothing like the little scenes people set up. Basically, the manger was like the basement of a house. Right. So the animals were in the bottom and the people were right over top of them and the animals were providing heat. So the, the concept of the animal being close to the homestead or even part, uh, a mainframe part of the homestead has very long historical roots in society. It's only, it's only very modern times where we have decided that our chickens should be in a giant chicken house a uh, hundred miles away in a Tyson factory. Right. It right. was very traditional that the animals be very close to people. And if you think about like, so in my climate, I might get four or five days like I'm about to have a year. And if I have to walk out there in the cold, it's not a big a deal. And unless it gets iced, it's maybe an inch of snow here and there. But for you, if you have to walk 400 yards to your barn to take care of your animals, and you have five feet of snow on the ground, that's a problem. 
Oh yeah. So Everything it's not just a sound thing; it's a logistical thing. It is, and and generally, I think that's a very common, one of the most common mistakes I see is people spreading things too far out on a homestead, and they they'll lay things out, or they start building their chicken coop, or they'll or they'll develop their site in a way that's way too spread out. I think you want to have buildings, all the buildings, as close together as you can. And, and have them not all burn down if one burns down. It basically, yeah. and you know, wind can make a big difference, but I think if you're 20 to 30 feet apart, I mean, have enough of a fire break and take into account prevailing winds sometimes, but the, otherwise you want to be as close as possible in, in, in my mind, certainly in a cold climate, um, from, from so many ends, like you're saying, not just from a soundscape, but we like to really, you know, one of the strong patterns too is, you know, I was asking myself, okay, what can you see and hear from your bedroom? Can you see where your animals are living? Can you shine a light and can it easily reach them? I think it, it should on, in most situations unless you have, you know, hundreds of animals or something where you need, you need more room. And we're always trying to create basically little courtyards where the barn is the center of it and, and the human living space overlooks that courtyard, either on the first floor ideally or on the second floor and can you can get out to that place really quickly too because – Stuff will still happen that you need to go out and you know chase. chase uh, it's on a totally different thing, you know. You just made me think of like I know that if like we have a coon on the porch or something, and you turn a light on, those things just hook ass and haul off, man. They yeah. it freaks them out. What, what are your thoughts? It just seems like a really simple solution I could do. Well, today's too cold, so maybe next week. Go down to Lowe's, pick up a couple motion sensor lights, mount them on the corners of the chicken coop. Done. I mean, if you have something moving around out there and it sets off that light, yeah. Yeah. it should be at least some level of a predator deterrent. Plus, if I have to go out there, I've got light on my side at that point. Definitely. I think actually there's a lot of like pieces of high technology, of electronic technology that can do wonders for us in terms of predator control. It's just a question too of like so many of those things don't seem to last very long. And yeah. I, I hate buying stuff that's you know, I mean, I want to keep my birds alive, but I also won't want to either just waste money or become dependent on something. But if it's going to last a while, I'm all for like putting rechargeable batteries in something if it's really going to do a big difference. And I think, I think it could, you know, lighting. I well, think. I've got power out there, so it'd be easy. Yeah. But I mean, I think my solution to chickens getting killed is pretty soon I won't have any more because I'm becoming, I, I'm, I'm falling in love with ducks, dude. They're the nice. easiest freaking livestock. Like when I saw them on your property up there, I'm like, that's way too easy. He doesn't do the only the only thing we had going on when I was up there with you was we had that sheep go down and they couldn't get their barn. Oh right, and they were pretty pissed off about that. So they are creatures of habit, but yeah, geez, which is, about, allows you to control them very well. What's that? Allows you to to manage them more easily because yeah. they're so habitual. Yeah, and you've got ponds, so you don't even have to worry about their water. I mean, no, and and I can, but I can also. I usually keep them out of at least two of three of the ponds most of the growing season because you know they trash it pretty quickly. I do let them in at the end of the year, kind of a big celebration, and they don't, they can't trash it too much in just short time. But like you saw, we're here, and someone the other day was just walking around. They're like, "What are these little sixteen-inch high fences for? I mean, what could that possibly be doing?" It's like, "Oh, those are geese and those are goose and and duck fences. Yep. It's like they could hop right over." Never mind fly over. I mean, they can fly down to the river like, you know, a quarter mile away. Um, but they just don't because they learn that's not part of their path. And they yep. just want to walk the same path 
all day. <laughs> well, and I guess some of them can fly, but like my, I've got Rowans and Cayugas and stuff. Those birds can't fly. Oh yeah, at all. They, yeah, my my runners and I mean I'm pretty confident it's a couple of my ducks could fly south if they wanted. I mean yeah. I've seen it. They can really fly. And I'm just, we're always amazed that they don't. We're like, better not tell them. You know, <laughs> no, like, they can fly. I'll tell you these big the big domestics. They'll get running and they flap their wings and they jump. <laughs> and they get about two inches of altitude and about ten inches of distance. That's funny. They're hilarious, you know. Now, yeah. I had to clip their wings because yeah, we. I'm su- I'm surprised my geese don't fly either because they're. I mean, they're pretty heavy. Around, they flap sometimes, and you know they can. If something's chasing them, like a neighbor's dog come over, they'll they'll fly you know fifty feet away from it. Sometimes they'll smash right into something. And they're not. They're not used to doing it, but um. Well, they have huge wings. I mean, that's the thing. They're just giant, and yeah, I, as pretty as they are, I even felt bad of clipping their wings, you know. But it was like yeah. I had one get over the fence and get hit by a car, and I'm like, okay, you guys, I gotta, I gotta do this for your own good, you know. Right, right. And geese are a great one, like you said. For from a soundscape perspective, you know, ducks are. I mean, the ducks will enhance your soundscape, and goose will geese will sometimes make it negative. But the the sentinel value, like you said, of having just a goose or a few geese in the mix can be enough to 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 relay that sound you know to where you know if you're indoors in the winter or whatever it is cuz they they get pissed they don't want to see you know like an, a, a weasel or anything in your box thing that's not normal right like i found that if i go outside they might honk a couple times at me just to get my attention but they don't really go ape but if right. i go out wearing clothing that's totally different than what yeah. i normally wear they know it's me. They're still like, this wrong. You've done something, you know, yeah. terrible and horrible. And now we must scream at you and hiss at you and attack you until you go put the right clothes on. Right. And strangers. I mean, they definitely, oh, you know, they definitely know like the two of us that live here and, and, you know, anyone else. They're pretty much pissed at when they get here for a while. <laughs> and God forbid a stranger that's a child that's down on their level because then it's now I can really intimidate you and, right. you know, um, but the nice thing about that is, you know, everything, we try to make everything holistic and integrated. So it doesn't take the dogs long to figure out that when the geese are upset, something's going on. And then the dog goes and investigates that. So they have a team, whether they, you know, because the geese actually hate, I don't know how your geese are with your dogs. Our geese hate our dogs. Yeah, they don't like them, but they, they don't really, uh, you know, they don't have conflicts between each other. Yeah, we don't have conflicts, but they don't, they, well, Charlie plays with them and they want him dead and he doesn't know that. He thinks it's a game, but, <laughs> but they are team working whether they want to or not. When those geese go off, Right. The dog's ears are up. The dogs are out. They want to know, okay, what are you upset about? Yeah. What's going on? I'm going to take care of this. And, you know, that's all part of that soundscape component. And, it, you know, it's like something that could be a negative being a positive. What do you think about ways that we can funnel sound that we do want? Like you mentioned moving water. So we had this yeah. seasonal creek in Arkansas that when it rained a lot, you could hear it. And it was awesome. I just sit on the porch and listen to it. Mm-hmm. But it makes me think, like, what if you had, like, a, a constant creek – so you really couldn't hear that well. How could you maybe open some things up and funnel that sound so that you can hear that a little bit better? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think you just have to start thinking about sound as just the energy waves that, you know, that at least in its most basic form is. So how do you, you know, how do you move those energy waves around? And like you say, if you have a creek, oftentimes creeks are down in a low spot, so the sound doesn't want to get out. So you can, you know, you can clear some vegetation or Build, build a small rock wall on the opposite side of it and try to actually send that sound toward you. Um, those are good ways to do it. You know, they're, they're limited in what they can do, but sometimes it can be of influence. As I told you, our, our most negative aspect of my soundscape here on our 10 acres is this, 
because of this cliff that's across the village and the road is awesome because it's below us and if it wasn't for this cliff yeah you wouldn't really hear the road but because this cliff all the, there's no trees all the trees are the gra- the bare rock is exposed for like 100 feet that just serves as a sounding board and sends it right back at us um so you know you can kind of you can look around in any place you have an echo you can start to learn like what sends sound around and try to try to do that i mean dropping water and if you have, you need a bunch of water, but you need a, a continuous flow. But if you do have a continuous flow, you can easily just make it do a vertical drop sometimes near your zone one, ideally, where you can then, you know, hear it better. And that's great for aeration as well. Um, sometimes you can use, you know, uh, polyethylene piping to get water, you know, into zone one and just let it drop and then bring it back to the water course that was, it was in. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of different things, but... um I think often we can do a lot with water if you have a lot, but sometimes you can do more with just like planting a bunch of, of, of perennials that keep their leaves. And then in the winter, whenever the wind blows, you're going to have that leaf sound. Um, I mean, wind chimes. I love my, my sister got me some wind chimes at one point. They're really one of the top, you know, five parts of our soundscape here and just noticing them when the wind blows. When the wind's not going, of course, you know, you don't have those influences and that's when it's easy to like, be like, oh damn, I hear that, you know, I hear the road down below. Um, but you know, sometimes in the summer we're hearing birds or in the spring, you know, sometimes there's not, you you know, it's hard to get it right every day of the year if you have a negative soundscape to mitigate Mm -hmm. uh, until those huge walls of pines or spruces or hemlock get up, you know, but that's why we like with anything in permaculture, attack it at multiple levels, like plant your, you know, plant your wall of conifers right off the bat, but also do what you can to mitigate the sound while they're growing because it's going to be a little while maybe before they're really working for you. Yeah, you know, what you what I got out of that though for the sounds you do want to hear is probably the best thing you can do to magnify a sound or to mitigate a sound is the same thing. It just depends on where you do it, and that is to obstruct it. So if right. I want to magnify a sound, I want to obstruct it behind me. Right, so that the sound comes past me and bounces back to me. Right, deflection. Yeah. Right. So, but if I want to, if I want to mitigate the sound, then I want to block it before it gets to me. Sure. And so I can use the same type of hardscape, and its placement determines what happens. Which means I could actually take a sound that I like, but I don't want everywhere, and accentuate it one place and mitigate it another place. Right. Deflection. Yeah, it's really deflection absorption. I mean, you really can look at it like you know martial arts, and you're working with soundscape in your property is. Really, you know, you could say that is that is like a, a martial art in that way. You're either, you know, either you know blocking energy or trying to deflect it. You know, ideally, usually the latter. Absolutely. So we want to create something like an outdoor studio, right, for contemplation. We could put up a a hardscape and set the 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 work area or the hangout area on the side of, let's say, water. And then on and strategically locate that. So if we had rose noise, it's on the exact opposite side of that structure. Right. And we're going to diffuse one and increase the other with one. So we're now we're function stacking a single element. Right. And often was a really nice overlap, not the hottest microclimates for, you know, in your, in your climate, it's not as important, but where we are, it's all about creating hot microclimates for a lot of our, a lot of our strategy. And the bowl shape sunken into the ground and facing south where you have wind protection and solar access is our, those are our, our honey spots for, for hot microclimates. And those happen to be very, very good for microclimate because you're deflecting any negative sound around you and you're kind of getting away from it by going down into a bowl. 
we could do that same function here and and face the opposite direction and create shade in a cool spot. Absolutely. And right. get the same sound effect. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, there's one other, you know, one pattern too, just I don't want to forget, so I'd mention is on the piece where we're talking about, you know, security and also just nighttime soundscape, um, one pattern, it gets down to really into the details too, is not only facing your bedroom to the entrance to your property and where your animals hang out, kind of what I would call like your homestead or farm courtyard, which I think we all should have in some form or another. It's just such a strong pattern to have a courtyard. Um, but the relationship of actually where you place the bed itself to the window. And I once really got into detail with this and geeked out hard because I was helping design a, a, a campus down in the Bahamas where it was incredibly hot. And when the grid would go down or, or the off-grid system, you know, we wanted to conserve the power. So we weren't wanting to rely on, on fans so much. The placement, and this is the same for soundscape and the same for keeping people comfortable in hot climates, is you want a place where your head is, you want fresh air. And you want visibility. So you can have the window facing the right way. But if your bed, like a lot of people's are, put, it puts your head a foot below the windowsill, you're going to miss a lot. So actually having like low windowsills or beds that are high up or both, you know, working out that exact relationship and cross-section. I think having at least like a double window, at least like three foot wide minimum um, by the bed that's at the level of the bed where your head is actually above the windowsill so you can like spin your head and like see immediately outside right right off the bat um i think it's so important and when you start getting used to that you won't my experience is you won't want to sleep in a room where you don't have that you it just become you feel like you have no idea what the hell's going on outside <laughs> yeah yeah definitely so it, it's it, we're, we've you know we've been really kind of going over today is is the whole concept of sound. Can you think of maybe some other design elements that really tend to integrate with that and 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 lead off to some other things? Like, is there anything? So you're in a cold climate, for instance. Is there anything you do with sound mitigation or amplification that also helps you deal with the fact, other than the one you talked about with the recessed you know facing bowl, right? Uh, to deal with the fact that we were talking before you even got on the air about it, how your biggest fear is something breaking in the ground in the wintertime, mainly mm -hmm. water. So mm -hmm. are there any other you know features like I guess running water doesn't freeze would be or tends not to freeze as quick mm -hmm. anyway. Yeah, no, there, there's a lot of great overlap. Um, I think the biggest one that we always find in our projects is when we're mapping soundscape and view shed, they're like working for the same thing. Mm. So oftentimes you have a negative, you know, the negative view shed source is also a negative soundscape source, you know, more, more times than not. Every now and then we get a, so, so in that situation, you know, planting a big hedge or making a berm or a fence or whatever it is blocking and deflecting away from that source helps you from a soundscape perspective and a visual perspective you know maybe headlights at night or whatever it is those headlights are also making you know coming from a car that's making sound you don't want um every now and then we have the opposite and that's where it gets tricky which is like we have a beautiful view shed but there's a negative sound coming from it um i can't think of a good example offhand but sometimes like you'll want to You know, you want to see across to someone's pasture or whatever, but the road, you know, if you leave that open, the road noise is also coming up. That's mm -hmm. more difficult. So ideally you align those, like in any situation, you align those, um, those tensions in terms of what you're trying to invite in or deflect away. But usually soundscape and view shed are kind of on the same team. Um, and, and also wind, microclimate, wind, wind deflection, you know, wind and sound travel in very, 
you know, very similar ways. So you can have, ideally, if there's a road near you, it's from the prevailing wind side that you want to protect. Now, if you're in a hot climate and you want the prevailing winds invited in, then that's not, then it's intention. But if you're, you know, in a, in a climate where you're also trying to protect from winds and the road is on that side, that's, that's great. Although you're going to have less sound coming in, you know, wind brings, you know, tra- a sound moves with wind quite significantly. So you're going to hear more as well as smell more, as you know, from hunting if you're downwind. And also across being um, across open water, as I'm sure you know, is a huge deal. I mean, I grew up in a little cottage in the summers, and we could hear this one party our neighbors had every year. They're really they're not our neighbors; they lived a mile away, but it was a mile across a lake, and you could hear you could hear people's conversations every now and then. Like if they're if they're having a loud conversation, the wind was just right, you could hear what they were saying a mile away. Hmm. You know, open water is a big deal, especially if it's like calm water. Sure. Can we talk a little bit about how you deal with winter up there in general since, well, you're right in the middle of it, and so so are a lot of other people. I mean, yeah. I can tell you what I have to do to deal with it down here, and you're just like, yeah, whatever. Uh, <laughs> I don't blame you either, right? So, I mean, what what is this time of year like for a permaculturist in Vermont? Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a great timing because we're we're just getting into the deepest cold. You know, our sub-zero temperatures are coming in hard right now. The f- first time in the whole winter that we're really going below zero, probably down to 15, 16, 18 Fahrenheit below zero before wind chill, and it's going to be blowing. So, you know, there's a wind, there's a a cold weather advisory. I think they call it here the NOAA, and it's like 30 to 40 below with wind chill. Um, so, you know, and it'll get colder than that every now and then, and we'll see 25 below. So we're cold compared to most people in the U.S., but there are some people in Montana that are even colder in Canada. For us, you know, we're carrying a lot of wood. You know, when the weather gets like this, we're loading, we're keeping two stoves going because we got the stove in our office and the stove in our house. Um, and we're checking on the birds more often. Um, the birds are the only animals we have right now, so normally we check on the sheep more often. But the sheep would be so hardy, it doesn't really matter. The birds need water changed out more often. Um, but really, you know, things are pretty dialed in. So it's it's wood tending, it's keeping those stoves going, checking on the birds, just making sure, you know, the plumbing's behaving correctly. It's not that much of an issue yet, but towards later in the winter... Um, when the, if the ground's really frozen, we can start wanting to like run like a little extra hot water, which for us is wood heated. So it's great just to make sure nothing's going to freeze in the ground. I mean, mm-hmm. we have insulated stuff and we should have a good setup that's below frost, even if no one's here, but it's always a little safer to just, you know, prevent. And cause once something freezes in the ground, you know, it's too late for you to, you, you can't know if it's close to freezing. You just know when it froze. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know? So you don't, you have, you're really fighting, you're shooting blind when it's like frost diving in the ground. Yeah. With, with, with water in, in cold climates, it's, it's a lot like level. It's an absolute condition. It's right. frozen or it's not. There is no almost frozen. I guess unless like a garden hose is, is defrosting, but it's already frozen first. Right. Um, yeah. What what about like okay, so you know, you have this amazing place. You have, you know, when I was up there, I don't know if you still have sheep or whatever. You had sheep and they were grazing, geese are grazers. You've got all these wonderful lines of trees and swale systems and rice paddies. Well, this time of year everything's probably covered in snow. Yeah. So what are you what are your activities like? When do you start picking up the activity toward spring planning, spring maintenance and things like that, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, so I mean, this time of year, we're lucky to have ground, snow cover. Hopefully, you know, we hope for snow cover year round, um, not year round, for snow cover, <laughs> win, winter long snow cover, because for us, that's going to protect the ground. Sure. Protect a lot of trees, protect frost from diving and heaving and all sorts of stuff. Um, and so we're lucky right now. We have, we lost a lot of it. We had like three feet almost, and then now packed down to like four or five inches of like, hard it's basically ice but it's still um insulating the ground a bit so the ground's frozen but it's maybe only i don't know probably six inches frozen right now but it'd be much more if there was no snow so when there's snow on the ground that really changes what we can do versus not i mean we'll start logging so our winter is like logging season when the ground's frozen even if there was no snow it's good logging conditions Mm -hmm. a little bit of snow is still good if there's a lot you got to pack it in depending on how you're logging so I start logging around this time of year. I'm still going on a lot of wood that I had from years earlier, so I'm not doing much. But that's that's what everyone around here starts to do who are running off their own wood lot um, for firewood or building materials, but mostly firewood. Um, you can really move around a lot. So I'll actually go do a lot of foraging in the winter. I collect chaga all winter. I come across more chaga on skis in the winter than in the summer. Not just because I can cover way more ground on skis and have more fun doing it, but you can see everything. You Stands know, out, summer, right? Yeah, and when the leaves are out, you know, your sight lines are so short. And in the winter, you can just see, you know, chaga for one on uh, yellow birch and white birch, you know, kind of anywhere. I can cover miles on skis, have a great time, bring a little hip pack and bring back chaga. That's kind of a favorite pastime. Let, let's stop there a second because there's a whole bunch of people in the audience going, chill, uh. Right. Right, right. So tell me what chaga is and why they should care. Oh yeah, chaga is an awesome mushroom. You don't want you want to be careful harvesting it because it grows really slow. It's like a Siberian staple medicine. You know, the people who've lived in some of the largest cold climate areas in the world, like the twelve time zones of Russia, basically um, one of the most important fungi that they would harvest. It's an adaptogenic fungi, so we make tea out of it. You can carve it with a, a knife, kind of cut it off, or, or with a grater. Um, and a little bit goes a long way in a pot of tea and you decoct it versus, um, diffuse it. So it's like, not like a leaf you would just make, a, um, you know, diffusion. Um, with chaga, anything hard that's like woody, you, you know, simmer it for 20 minutes or more. I and mean, we just keep it on the wood stove like a bone broth. And it's just, we're always, we're always brewing chaga, rishi, turkey tail tea and a bone broth. Pretty much. It's like one of those or both are always on the wood stove, the wood cook stove. At all times throughout the winter. So lately we've been living on like goose broth. You just throw a whole goose in the pot. Sometimes mm-hmm. we'll cut the fat off first, render the fat because that's so valuable to cook in. And then there's still so much fat you can't get off the bird. There's still enough for the what's in the pot. And we'll have a goose broth going. You know, one goose per week is like probably half, almost half of what we eat for the week. Well, Plus, that'll teach them to destroy your winter squash, won't it? The what? That'll teach them for destroying your winter squash. Exactly. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. And then, and then our winter. Fortunately, we have some winter squash this year. Between that, between goose, you know, we got forty geese or a little less in the freezer. Uh, between that, a bunch of you know cow bones and 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 you know venison steaks and bones, and sh- and um, shiitake mushrooms, winter squash, potatoes, and sauerkraut. That's really all we need to live really really well i mean Mm. we still eat some other stuff we buy some local organic whipped cream from the creamery down you know down a county away but we can live on those you know handful of items and feel really great doing it and all that stuff stores really well 
Um, so that's, that's what we're doing this time here too, is, is just cooking a lot and like, you know, storing up on energy and sleeping and, and, you know, cruising around on skis when we can, um, great conditions for hunting. I mean, obviously most of the seasons are over now starting January 1st, but we were going, going around for grouse before, um, the new year. It's great. It's just an, uh, it's an amazing time of year to move around I mean, you can really move through the landscape so easily with the ground as hard as it is, as long as until the snow gets really deep. And we're, we're always in between deep snow cycles here because we get, we get above freezing so often. We're not like out West in Western U S and Canada where it's like more consistent. During this time of year, are you doing any like grafting, plant propagation yeah. like that for, for yeah, so that'll, that'll start up. It's really like what we call stick season. Then we get into winter and we put the gardens away, cover everything, and there's really nothing garden related except in the greenhouse a little bit. Like harvesting greens and stuff is what we're doing now. Until the first thing we'll do is do hardwood cuttings, and that'll that'll start in the next few weeks. Here we'll start to take dormant season cuttings, probably right after the first. The, what we think might be the last like hardcore Arctic blast. Like as soon as we feel like, all right, it's not going to get below zero, maybe too many times more. We're not going to see like negative 20 again. Sometime in February, we'll, um, with a weather forecast, we'll start taking dormancies and cuttings on sea berry and all sorts of mostly berry, pl- berry plants. Start sticking those in the greenhouse, um, which are easy to keep moist because the whole place is moist all winter. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, and then we'll also start pruning season after that. So then in early March, late February is when we'll start pruning and, and, and starting to train and especially just prune a lot of trees. All the apples will start getting up. The days are longer. It's much more nice to work outside. But really from November until that starts happening in February, it's a real hibernation up here and it's key. I mean, we, lo- I love it more every year and focus just more on like storing up energy and cooking and, and covering ground in the landscape and kind of more like zone five, just covering ground in the larger landscape and foraging and just kind of being really, really active. Um, I find it's a time of year to get an aerobic shape because I can just move around. Um, but, but, um, you know, the garden season, luckily we have a little bit of a, of a break from it. Um, we have actually fresh winter, you know, we finally getting our timing down in our greenhouse, our glass house for late, um, late October before November seeding hardy winter greens. And now we have them up enough that we're eating, we can eat a good size salad every day now, which is great because, and also with kale, we actually will transplant kale. This is just a year or two old strategy. We're realizing it's perfect. If early to mid October, we dig up kale plants outside full size, like little kale trees and transplant like 25, 30 of them into the greenhouse. There'll be like kale trees we can harvest off of. They kind of grow on the sunny day here and there. But, and then in February when the sun comes out, they'll really start to grow. So it's like overwintering and kind of harvesting. It's really a form of food storage, but then it's food stored that will also start growing again. So then in February, those things will burst and they'll start growing like crazy. It's hard for people to realize, but in this climate, which is a lot like the Great Lakes, the Northern Great Lakes, the sun does not come out. It's not like the western states. We don't have almost any sun from sometime in November to February. I mean, literally this year, we've had a day and a half of sun in five weeks. And so nothing's going to grow. We just don't, and the days are short. So it's not a heat issue. You can pour all the cords of wood you want in your greenhouse. Everyone always just says, well, why don't you heat your greenhouse more? It's not a heat issue. You know, it's a light issue. Hmm. And so from a passive solar perspective too, I don't want to go off on a 
on one of my tangents, but I think it's really important is people overplay how much you can do with passive solar in this kind of northern New England Great Lakes climate in the winter. Not to say it's not a good thing, but you're just not going to get there's a limit to what it can do. Oh, and it's and it's severely severely limited as well as solar hot water or anything like that PV um for a couple and a half months, you know, a year every year. It's nothing like being in the high country of Colorado or Montana. I mean, the sun comes out, it can be negative 30, you know, but you you get a lot of sun. It's it's a very different climate in that way. Or what we could do here in Texas. We got it low in the sky, but we still have long long days relative to the north. And right, you know, we get some some we get some cloudy days and stuff like that. But we have right. a, you know abundance of sun, and, and and you guys don't. You get a lot of clouds. You get a lot of humidity. You know, yeah. got short our, days. Our, I mean, our saving grace, and I used to say it was our saving grace, but I've really seen it almost happen less and less, it seems, so maybe I'm paying attention more, is usually the coldest days, I mean, if it's below zero or negative 10, it's a bluebird day. It's sunny, because to get that cold, it had to be clear at night. True. Also seen a lot, and this is when it's just freaking ruthless, is it'll be clear out in the end of the day, get bitterly cold. And then the clouds will move in in the mo- first thing in the morning, and then you're just like, Ugh. "Wow, this is a bad joke." You, you know? got you got jacked both ways. That that's, oh, that's yeah. how it is here too. Like yesterday, it was 54 degrees. I know you hate me for that, but <laughs> it was like bluebird clear. Yeah. And I'm like, "Yeah, it'll be 25 tonight." And my wife's like, "How do you know?" I'm like, "Because when it's winter and it gets this clear, as soon as that sun goes down, the heat just goes. Poof, it's gone." Right. Right. So, so I wanted to ask you another question about your place. So, a lot of people have read your book, which is one of the best books on permaculture I've ever read personally. Thanks. And I think your property's ten acres. Is that right? Ten acres here, and then we have like a with our family, we have a kind of farm scale site of one hundred and seventy five. So you've got that big property, but I'm just focused on your your yeah. your farmstead. I guess you'd call it. That's what I call mine anyway, right now. On that ten acre property, it was really well developed years ago when I was there. It, with your, you know, you're doing seaberry propagation and stuff. How close are you to feeling? I know a permaculture site's never done, but that that ten acre site is kind of fully—I wouldn't say developed because there's a time right. factor, but right. fully planted to where you know whatever you're propagating all, it's not going in the ground there. Maybe yeah. a thing or two here or there, or your annuals. But how close are you where you feel like all the trees that need to go in for a long time are in the ground, bushes, etc.? That's a good question. I feel like we're pretty much planted out in zone one. Wow. Uh, Within reason, you know, uh, zone one, two. Um, but then, you know, we stuck 30 more, you know, persimmons and honeyberries, probably 40 trees we planted right before I went away this fall in like an upper zone one area that was really under planted. Um, so, but I'd say we're pretty much there in zone one with the huge caveat that there's always more room in zone one. When you sure. think zone one's full, I say, look around because you can put a vine in 10 places or especially if you want to get all funky and vertical with, with vines, especially you can do whatever or, or the herbaceous layer. But as far as like, yeah, larger planet material, zone one is, is pretty much there. Zone two, you know, maybe another couple years, we're mostly there. And I mean, even out zone three, four, where it's like timber trees and nuts, um, I'm going to put in another, I'm actually going to plant a, a quarter of an acre of um, black locust. I decide there's some area that's so rough down in the northwest corner of my property. I just realized in the last few weeks, I'm just going to stuff like a couple hundred locusts in a grid pattern and grow timber crop mm-hmm. in one area. So there's an area that I figured, oh, it's kind of done. We'll just graze it. Where I was like, you know what? That actually wants like 200 trees. <laughs> um, you know, like, because it's just, it's, it's bouldery and it's like, it's, it's really, 
I don't have, it's a management thing too. You know, you can, you can throw black locusts in and be like, all right, that's going to be growing value for me. And I don't have forever on it. Right. For a long time. Yeah. I mean, coppicing for over and over. So I'd say, and then we have like maybe another 50 nuts to put in down low, but those are our bur oaks and our swamp white oaks are starting to really come up down low. Our chestnuts, we've been planting for many more years than those oaks, but they're just, they hate it on this site. So I'm kind of coming up with the rear guard of, of oaks to say, all right, you know, we gave you a chance, chestnuts. There'll still hopefully be some, but I'm not going to like wait on them. And I'm going to come in hardcore with the oaks and have in the last four to five years and some black walnuts too. What would you, what would you say the size of your zone one and your zone two are? And before you answer that, just for people that are new to the concept of permaculture on the show, uh, in zones, what we talk about is areas of activity. So zone one would be the areas that you're involved with in touching and are in and seeing and observing every day. Zone two, it's a little less interaction. Zone three, even less. Zone five is like you just let it go and let it do what it is. So it's about areas of activity. But your zone one and zone two, uh, how much activity or, I mean, how much space do they occupy? And then kind of a follow-up question to that, what percentage of your your food uh, supply do you feel comes from your property and from your wildcrafting? Yeah. I would say zone one is probably about an acre. Okay. I, I, what I, what I tend to consider zone one to really get, get to, um, get my hands on is, is, is probably about an acre max, really. I mean, it's all sloping and, you know, there's terraces every, you know, it's not like a, a square and it's not flat. So it's a little hard to... Yeah, you have a lot of surface area in that acre. That's true. Right, yeah. exactly. There's a lot of niches in that acre. I mean, I got a, three raging kiwi vines I'm looking at right now that are 20 feet off the ground on our on the balcony. Um, but that's, I'd say, roughly an acre, a little smaller, maybe even half. And then zone two, maybe you call call a couple, I'd maybe call about a couple acre zone two. It's actually not much bigger than zone one, what I would call two. And then we really go to three, what I would call like three, four, and that's a pretty dis, in dis, pretty blurry line for me um here and that's like probably five acres to to the re, to maybe all the rest of the site except about an acre where i could legitimately almost call one acre like zone five okay um although we're kind of surrounded by zone five i mean i can go on skis or foot and basically without crossing a road go into hundreds and hundreds of forested acres and then if i cross a couple dirt roads be in a mountain, small mountain chain that's like, you know, they log, someone might log it, someone hunts it every now and then, but it's 10, 15,000 acres of, you know, basically zone five. So that's awesome. That's and awesome. so forage, so that's where we forage a lot. Um, I'd say foraging and eating, you know, I've realized something really interesting about, you know, what do we produce, you know, proportion of calories. And I'd say we probably buy, 20 to 30 percent of the food that we eat but we prop but there's a funny thing and i'd say we grow almost 100 percent of the calories we need but we don't yeah. necessarily you know stuff no, goes bad. Sure, so i get you right stuff goes bad and we trade stuff because we like we go out to eat you know my wife and i sure love you great you know there's great restaurants locally so it's kind of and and we're also limited in processing time or how much we want to devote prioritize to processing. So that's really the caveat. I feel like we kind of produce. We could easily live, I think, off of what we produce. The fact of the matter is, in our way, our lifestyle is we don't because we like to go out to eat. We like to trade for food. And well, eat. even if you were if you were getting seventy percent and you were taking all you could to get there, 
Um, that's still very high, I think, for most people. I think, it, it, yeah, it's high. I mean, that includes probably some barter and trade. I mean, we get yeah. some deer from relatives, and we get um, a whole bunch of meat. Um, and now that we're not raising uh, sheep, too, it went down. So it's probably some of that is a good chunk of that is like some meat, you know, from a neighbor. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, varies probably. I mean, I feel like many meals is like ninety five. 98% of the calories are from here. I mean, it's often that we're looking at a plate any time of the year and like, wow, that's all from this property. Um, it's not often that most of it's not from the property. So, <laughs> you know, I haven't weighed it, but, you know. In your experience, because you've dealt with sheep, you've done broiler chickens, now you've done geese, you've done ducks. My experience has been if you want to make meat out of grass – yeah. There is nothing that does it faster than a goose. From your experience, would you say the same thing? Exactly. I have that conversation. I just was having that conversation last night with a buddy of mine because, you know, we're talking about chickens and pigs. And it's like, I mean, the goose is the smallest cow that I know of. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's, it puts weight on, it turns grass into high value nutrition. And so, you know, yeah. And I ultimately, I would put that, put that right out there is I think, in the least in this climate, we got to be grass based heavily um, because grass is the most reliable crop. I mean, there's no even in the year 1816, the grass crop didn't fail. You know, it's probably a good year for the grass. <laughs> like, if a grass crop fails, like we got the comet coming or we're, yeah, 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 like, puppy kittens are, are crawling around or something. Right, it's like oh man, if the you know the grass crop the apocalypse, fails, we're screwed if the ground grass crop fails. So, I mean, we need to be grass and tree based. Obviously, tree based is going to take longer, so grass is really key. I think, I think it's a goose and um, and it's cows. And for us, the conversation I was having last night is, what are the smallest cows? Because we really, on a scale like this, ten acres, really steep. I, I have no interest in like the full size breeds of cows. They're just too big for this place. They're when you process it, I don't need five hundred pounds at once of meat. You know, I'd rather have one hundred fifty or two hundred pounds at once. Um, sheep are great. But sheep are much more high maintenance. They find so many mm-hmm. ways to die. And when you do harvest a sheep, it's <laughs> it's not that much meat, you know. You no, you know. No, and I, I was at your place. I think for about two hours the time I came up there, oh, I yeah, decided sheep the were not for me. <laughs> yeah, you saw you saw the worst day of our of our right. We had the fly strike. Yeah, 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 yeah. that was bad. That's, that's the bottom of it. That's as bad as it ever got that day. <laughs> yeah, but that can happen, and that it was can. good. It, and it does happen. Yep, it only only time it happened to us was when you were here. But it it if you keep sheep, it probably might happen again. So yeah, it, it's <laughs> you can't write it off. And that's about pretty, you know, rough and just a waste of time and terrible for the animal. And luckily that, that animal survived. But yeah, sheep just expire too easily. And I mean, I love them and they're great and they can, you can do a lot of good. They have done a lot of good on the land here, but, um, and we might even do them again, but it's a management thing. You know, if we have, um, a yeah. couple of friends living here, interns, like we might do a flock of sheep because it's great for the scale of the land. And that's why one of the reasons sheep were, were so, popular in vermont not that they also didn't destroy vermont and they did if they were you know managed poorly like anything but i I really want to move towards small cows on this property our larger site is great for grazing you know full-size cows i mean there's a you know Mm -hmm. five acres of open land so nothing better than than that leverage of being able to move that much um land like you said the goose is like the smallest cow they make so i can take an animal that's a gosling Right. I can have it on grass at two weeks of age. At 12 weeks of age, I can kill it. 
And I've got an 11 pound bird with a nine and a half pound carcass. Yeah. You know, and it's, and I can kill two. Yeah. I can wait to kill more, except when you do kill out of a flock, you kind of have to get them away slowly because they get upset. Right. You know, they, and they remember that you did it. Like you have to convince them that the other ones just left. They have a little bit more, uh, flock nature, I think. You know, you kill a chicken, the other chickens are like, Oh, right. Like whatever. A pig, a pig will come lick up the, you know, the blood from the, yeah. the slaughter, you know. Yeah, geese, we did about four, we got started with 45 geese this year and did, you know, kind of small commercial scale. We're going to end up eating it all, but then I hired a couple friends and interns to help me process and we did 40, some odd, about 40 in a day. And they're, they're a great food source and we got about nine, I think they're about eight to nine pounds. They're not that mm-hmm. big. I mean, you could probably raise an industrial meat bird if you're graining it like crazy that, that has as much meat, if not more than our geese. Yeah. But the food value is just as much because with the bones and for dog food replacement and for the broth and, and then the grain in was so low. I mean, and the fat, the fat, the fat is great. It's awesome. Beautiful. Right. The leg fat's huge. And I mean, I think we could cut our grain even more. We had some leftover grain from people raising broilers on our other site uh, that we kind of put into them. And I don't think it went. I don't. If we went to, if we had to just buy that grain and we didn't already have and want to use it um, next year, I'd like to try to get like, I think it was like, like less about one to two parts, uh, about one part goose. Excuse me, three to four parts goose, goose carcass weight, three to four pounds to like, let's say one to two pounds of grain or less. I mean, I think we achieved that this year, if I remember Mm -hmm. correctly, and we had like eight pound carcasses, but I think we could lower the grain much more quickly than we'd lower the carcass weight. Yeah, I think so. And I also think that one of the things that can be done with geese is we have a tendency in farmsteading to keep our animals longer than maybe we should, especially because there's like, so a goose hits the ground in like April, right? So, so 12 weeks later, you got, you know, the half of April and half of May, half of June, half of August, you're like in August, you could be, you could be slaughtering. Well, a lot of times we're really busy then. Right. So we'll keep those birds another four weeks until mid September and I don't think we get, you know, they might weigh a half a pound more, and your carcass might be a quarter pound more in that that four weeks. But right. if you if you hit them right at that eleven twelve week mark, then you really c- cut down on the the cost of conversion because you're not feeding them for another thirty days. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you know what's really exciting and interesting about geese that I haven't heard people talking about enough yet, but I want to explore personally is on the breeding end. Because, you know, with most animals and even geese, buying the new young animals is a significant part of the cost. Not really with chickens because there's so much chicken breeding happening or chicken, you know, raising hatcheries. But with geese, I mean, I paid like I think it was almost 15 bucks a bird. And then the shipping isn't cheap because we have like no hatchery. No one in the right mind would put a hatchery in this climate. So we ship them. And that's like, I think like a 50 or $75 just like flat charge, whether you get, you know, 40 or, or five. So the, the actually buying the animal cost is significant. People are paying like 50 to a hundred bucks a piglet around here or buying a steer. You know, all of a sudden you're at like three bucks a pound for your meat just because you had to buy the baby. Geese live for like 30 to 40 years. 
So if you had a pair of geese that could crank out, you know, I'd love to explore, could you raise enough geese every year off your own overwintered geese? And could you overwinter them on hay? That to me is one of the million dollar questions is like, if we can keep geese over a winter in a cold climate on hay, I don't even care if you had to ferment the hay or whatever, as long you can do whatever you need to to the hay. Yeah. The hay is so abundant. And I'm not convinced we can't do that. I know you people have said, yeah, you can do it a little bit, but I want to figure out how to do that because then we like are really a grain. I mean, I want to, I'm not going to be done until we're pretty much, we're free of offsite grain. You free know? of offsite grain. Yeah, I think you can. I don't know how excited a goose is about hay. I've never tried to feed my They're not. Yeah, they don't seem, you know, you know? once they get addicted to grain, everything loves it. Our ducks got our geese addicted to grain. So yeah, yeah. I, they I had to watch them though and learn. They didn't want it for months. They had to really learn, and then it made them. It made them mean. They're actually totally different flock after they started eating grain. Really? Yeah. Really? And every, all our interns noticed it. We because they didn't have any grain, and then we're like, "All right, we got all this extra grain, and we got to slaughter the geese soon. Let's start graining them." And they just they totally changed. Our, our supplemental feed is made mostly of peanut meal. Oh, interesting. And it seems that we end up with a better meat and a better egg from all of our animals due to that than we would if they were on any kind of a grain. There's some grain in the mix, but it's, I think it's like a 60% peanut meal and uh, no soy. And that's, yeah. that's done really well for them. I wish I could do more with grass. I mean, I only have grass, you know, I have a different time of year where I don't have grass. This, this is the time of year where I have it. Yeah. Um, but I, I think you can do what you want to do with the geese. I know that our, our experience this spring was, We tried incubating and brooding our own geese, and we we made one survive. Yeah. And, and a rookie, you know, goose that finally went broody got four to survive. Oh, that's pretty good. So she did a much better job, which with much less effort on our behalf. Sure. Than than we did, and because they made for life. So I think like the biggest thing I would want to make sure I did is once you've identify a pair, is to ban them. Right. So, you know, that exactly. pair is paired up because I think that pair bond actually seems to grow stronger. I've seen stuff this year that I never thought I would see. So the one goose we raised turned out to be a female, and she imprinted with the ducks. So yeah. she won't go with the geese. Well, that problem rectified itself when one of the young ganders decided, I want a mate. There's not one here. So he's left the goose gaggle and now spends his nights with her and the ducks. Right. Which is really hard to get a goose to leave something it's imprinted on. Right. So yeah. that pair bond is probably really solid. And I would bet, I, I'm not, I'm amateur goose guy at this point, but my instinct is that a goose in her second season is going to brood better and be a much better mother. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I really think that. We have one one that that's pretty broody, and they're laying like crazy. So I think it's it's pretty possible. I mean, I remember seeing the numbers on what goose or geese are supposed to lay, and our two ladies are already outstripped that. You know, yeah. I mean, they lay and they lay. They're much, you know, they're super cold hardy. So they're laying. We have them on like two extra hours of an LED light throughout the winter, and they're laying almost an egg a day. And it's a goose egg. It's like three times the mass. Oh, they're huge, egg, yeah, and way more nutritious. So I think they're a great – I don't know why people aren't, like, focused on geese just as a laying flock. The egg – the eggs – I would prefer duck eggs. I think duck eggs are my favorite yeah. to eat. But the, yeah. geese eggs are, the goose eggs are supposed to be even more nutritious than a duck egg, which is better than a chicken already. And they're just – I think they're a little more rubbery. They're still good. I mean, we use them. 
Um, but they're, they're maybe they're, they're, they're maybe not quite as good as a duck, but I think the, the laying capacity of them is nothing to sneeze at, especially if you can get around the grain, which you can to a large extent at the very least. And then the fact that they live for 30 to 40 years. Is a yeah. Year. Yeah. And they only lay in about a two and a half month window. So yeah. that preserves their, 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 their laying ability and their mothering ability for many seasons. Right. What we were able to do to get our bird to go broody is we just, and we probably could have done this with some ceramic eggs, but if she was, she was laying in the same spot, but she wasn't pulling down. Mm. So what we did is we decided, okay, here's two eggs we'll sacrifice to the cause. I took a Sharpie and drew an X on them. And that way I never, depleted her nest to zero. Right. And the day that I started seeing down go in that nest, I had, uh, and then the other thing I was doing is I was, I was always keeping about four eggs on the counter and turning them every day and using them from there. And the day that I started seeing down go in that nest, I took the most recent four eggs and put them back in the nest. Oh, cool. So she ended up sitting on like a dozen and she got four to hatch. Wow, that's pretty good. And but she laid a lot more than that. Yeah, but she didn't go broody till almost the very end of her cycle. Right, right. And my hope is that she'll go broody earlier, and that my young goose will go broody. Period. And as long as we get that, you know, I'm going to be calling some ganders. Yeah, I got young birds, and I've got to loose, and I can't tell who's what except right. by behavior. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of waiting to see is there another pair in there. Because any any odd ganders at this point, they're getting the X. Because my point was to do what you want to do is meet. And so far, I'm after two years, I'm back where I started in numbers. Right. Losses, failures, etc. Where the ducks, if a duck goes, you know, broody, I think I can make duck meat forever. Mm-hmm. And and I've just added, I don't know how well they do up there because of the the crankles, but I've just added muscovies. Yeah, yeah. And they're like the duck goose, man. They're, they're right. Like, they they will go broody down here in the south two to three times a season. Wow. So we'll yeah. see how that works out. I know people have great luck with muscovies in in the warmer climates. I don't know anyone who's tried it in the cold, but I, I don't, you know. They, yeah. Yeah, and they're not actually. They're I've like never seen them north of like zone six. Yeah. Yeah, they're yeah they're an odd they're an odd bird, but um, yeah, I think the the possibilities are are really you know significant. And we, by the way, it's a little trick. I don't know if you guys do this, but I mean, I was throwing the eggs in the compost for so long because you know when you have five to fifteen birds, the eggs you end up with a lot of eggshells. We dry them out, throw them in like the wood cook stove a little bit, making sure they're real dry, and then we throw them in a uh, like a Vitamix, like a serious blender, uh-huh. powder it all, and then we put that in our um, potting soil and cut that back in with some of their food which we feed them a lot of squash and stuff definitely feed it back to them you know, because that that calcium is so valuable so i was feeling like it's a total waste for that to go in the in the large scale compost pile the thing we've been doing is we put about a half a teaspoon of that egg pow- eggshell powder in with the dog's food yeah we've and they seem to have too. really like i don't know just kind of perked up since that and oh interesting they eat a lot of eggs too i i think i have the same deal with my dogs you do yeah they find the egg they can have it 
Right. I know <laughs> one of our dogs goes and sneaks goose eggs and is carrying it, you know, catch him in the yard carrying this huge goose egg. Yeah, we had a house guest that caught Max the other day with an egg, and he thought he was in trouble, you know, and he dropped it. It's like, just eat it, you know. <laughs> right. But uh, we find a lot of times I'll find eggs that I'm not sure how long they've been right. lost. And I'll just call one of the dogs over and, and drop it and break it for them. They eat its shells and all. Yeah. Um, we started selling eggs. So I, the dogs aren't getting as many eggs as they were. But until we started selling them, uh, about every couple of weeks, I'd have maybe a dozen eggs that were beyond our use capability. And I would just boil them. Yeah. And, and I would just crush them up, shells and all, in their food. And they go crazy on them. Yeah, that's valuable stuff. Just don't – one time I tried, I was getting all into it. And I ground up all the – made all sorts of powder with it. And I put some of it – I put like a teaspoonful into like a fruit smoothie I made. Uh, Not good. It like no? – it almost, it almost <laughs> was like putting uh, baking soda in vinegar. Oh. Yeah. It totally, oh, yeah. Totally reacts. It's basic, yeah. Not good. So, <laughs> I, I was like – at one point I got capsules. I was like, oh, I'm going to take capsules of this stuff. And then – my wife, who knows more about all that stuff, is like, I don't know if you're absorbing much of that, you know, but I don't know, you know, like a calcium tablet. But Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So, hey, man, I appreciate you being with us here today. Uh, you want to tell people how they can learn about more about you and the work that you do? Sure, yeah. You can check out WholeSystemsDesign.com or Google, you know, Google Whole Systems Design or my name, Ben Falk, and um, – we got our information on a lot on our website about our permaculture courses, and we have a new permaculture practitioners course, what we're calling a PPC, which we're really excited about. I think it's it's going to be super value dense, and it's four days. Can you talk about how that's different than a design course? Yeah, we're not going to focus on design at all. It's it's not going to be like going through the design process at all. We're going to be going through like the the day to day management and maintenance of a site that's already going, and like okay. what is it? What is that actually like? What is great? What's challenging? What takes a lot of time? What's worked? What's been the best things? What's been the worst? And really just kind of geek out on that with a small group of people um, for four days. And we might do it a second time because it looks like the first one might fill up uh, pretty soon. Um, and that, so it's going to be more, it, we were pushed to do it and it, it kind of came up as an idea by our PDC graduates. We surveyed like, like a hundred of them and got responses from almost a hundred and they all said, you know, that's what would be best next. But also people who haven't even taken a PBC or a PDC who maybe are already kind of further along and they feel like it wouldn't be valuable time for them, but they want to really learn what mistakes to avoid from another active homesteader. Um, that's really a, a big part of the, the audience there. And I think we're, I think it's going to be really, really fantastic. It's going to be like the, the two days of our PDC or day and a half that I really want to do, but we can't quite spend much more time on because my yeah. PDC instructor's like, sorry, we got the 72 hour curriculum we got to get through, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. So we're really going to go in on that in a deep way and we're calling. I'm glad to see you do that because I'd actually like to see all of us that are permaculture educators do more things like that. Right. Because I think a PDC is great. It can be transformational, but I also think a lot of students are kind of let down by it. Because they don't really know what it is, and yeah. they don't really get what it is, and they're looking really more for, I want my place to be X, right? And if, if you just want that, I, I don't know that the PDC is right for you. Right. Because it's such a, let's say, general format of design. And I think it can, I think it can transform the, the, the mindset of a person that consults for businesses that have nothing to do with agriculture. And it's, it's very valuable for that. But if the person really wants, I want to transform my 
suburban backyard, my five acres of the country, whatever, a practium, I think, might be a lot better suited. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, that's why we're just, yeah, we're calling it the PPC, the Permaculture Practitioners course, and it's just... It's just hands-on, you know, focused on on the management, maintenance, and and skill, you know, skills and tools. Not to mention, at four days, a lot of people can find the time to go versus two weeks for a PDC. Yeah, yeah, totally. I'm getting away for for two work weeks. It's like, yeah, that's that's. I'm always amazed as many people can do that as as do. So yeah, that's we got that going on and some of our other short courses and. Um, yeah, you can find us on on Facebook too. Hopefully. You ever notice how many retired folks and young people do PDCs? Yeah, that's because they're the ones with the time to do it, right? I know, <laughs> I know, absolutely, and um, yeah, we're so I, wish to- I took a PDC when I was eighteen. That would have been really, you know, uh, uh, twenty years of my life back that I didn't know I lost. Really, honestly, right? Totally, yeah, I know, <laughs> I know. I wish I found it in like you know late middle school. That would have been, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. But, but man, hey, I appreciate you being here with us today. And, again, uh, your book, I, I really recommend people check out your book, especially – and I think anybody can get a lot from your book, but I think especially people in the northeastern United States. It's, it's really tailor-made because it, 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 while it goes into general principles, it talks an awful lot about how you transformed your property. And anybody in that, that biome is going to have, you know, it might be a little colder, might be a little warmer, but very similar things that function and work, very similar rain patterns, humidity patterns, and things like that. So uh, I really recommend people check that out. And again, thank you for, uh, for being with us today, Ben. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Always, always a good time, Jack. Thanks for the show. All right, folks, so with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Ben Falk, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.